This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Shane Ward grew up in Detroit, one half of a set of identical twins and one of seven siblings. By his own account, those streets where he learned to play football were dangerous, but it was there that he gained confidence stemming from a talent for the sport. While caddying for a local golf course in high school, Shane was exposed to all sorts of people and acquired an entirely new set of skills, people skills. After attending and graduating from the University of Michigan, Shane found himself in Portland, Oregon, designing some pretty impressive sneakers for Adidas, where more self-discovery was uncovered. He learned for the first time in his life to appreciate the great outdoors, and still does to this day. Shane went on to design shoes both in-house and freelance for big brands like Puma, Converse, Fila, Rockport, and so many more. He also co-founded, helmed, and designed for Detney by Shane and Sean, the men's and women's shoe collection he created with his twin brother. The line was sold in large stores like Macy's, and they opened a standalone boutique in the heart of New York's Nolita. Today, discovery continues for the True Blue creative. He's begun painting again, and his large-scale pieces combine his appreciation for both the sneakers that inspire him and elements of nature. Today, Shane is creative director for G3 Apparel Group, in charge of footwear for DKNY Men's, the heritage brand Bass, and others. I've known Shane for a very long time and I've seen him grow and this podcast reflects that. Shane tells his life story, gets into his career's trajectory, discusses the things that inspire him, how he sets the scene for creative flow and brings us into his world of the modern male shoe designer with an extraordinarily unique perspective. What was your childhood like? Okay, we're going in heavy. We're going in, we're going in heavy. That's why I'm like, it was actually, very, it was very interesting for me to put these questions. It was very interesting yes. for me to put these questions together because like I said, we, we have known each other for a very long time. Yes. And it's, it was different putting them together for you because I, I, I see your life like as a friend in pieces, right. segments. Um, and it was just, it was just an interesting, it was a different process putting t- these, uh, these questions together. So let's start from the beginning. What was, uh, you know, share what your childhood was like. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting because the first flashes of, of life that I remember was when I was about five years old and my family moved to Japan, moved to Tokyo because my stepfather was in the air force. And I just remember you know, just feeling that innocence, the excitement. Um, I remember now how different people looked um, um, on the Air Force Base. And then we came back and we moved directly to Detroit. I was born in Cincinnati, but by the time we went to Tokyo and came back, my mom divorced my stepfather who was in the Air Force. And so when it comes to childhood memories from what I, I remember vividly on a day-to-day basis, 
it starts in Detroit, really. Um, at the age of about seven, eight. And that's when I started to feel pretty unsafe. Um, a lot of the positive, uh, hopeful, fun experiences that I had in flashes in Tokyo and, and a few in Cincinnati before we went to Tokyo, um, they were all gone. And I say that because uh, basically when we moved there, my mom moved up to Detroit as a single parent with seven kids and trying to find a job. And all of a sudden, you know, we were moving around house to house and that was the norm. And every time we moved into a neighborhood, you faced the, the, um, the challenge of introducing yourself and also being respected. Um, when I'm talking about Detroit, I'm talking about the west side of Detroit. And, you know, we were on welfare. Uh, we received the government cheese and powdered milk and... Good to say. Yeah. yeah, man, that old school that food stamps. People yeah. nowadays they have it good because food stamps is on a credit card looking That's right. device. Not, but back not, then it was not the book. same process, not the same, no. not the same. Um, yeah, thing that you have to actually have to do and yeah, go through. Yeah, I mean these they were big kind of coupons that you had to take into the store that looked nothing like common currency. So there was a lot of shame that went into that. Um, once you start finding out that not everyone was on government assistance and didn't receive food stamps. So it was on top, there was a lot of shame that I dealt with, um, an embarrassment on a day-to-day -day basis in Detroit. And then there was a lot of fear because uh, people who um, saw us for the first time, we were these little nerdy, quiet kids from Cincinnati moving to Detroit. Yeah, and like Cincinnati to Detroit is like, you know, country, nerds to, to yes. big city yeah yes and we had to prove ourselves and people truly did they wanted to kick our ass they were simple as put you know and we found a way to win by playing football and i remember some of the most positive experiences that i had growing up in detroit was just playing football on the streets and when we were done beating people in football <laughs> we would go back into the house and then my brothers would play uh video games and i just remember never wanting and never feeling engaged in video games. That's when I started to draw. And I think that's when oh, the color started back up in my that's life and the positivity. That's very interesting. So you discovered kind of like your skill for football on the streets. Right? Yes. You're absolutely. like, I'm playing in the streets and I have something going here. I'm, I'm good. Number one. And then number two is you, you put yourself in front of a visual medium, like, mm -hmm. like a video game. And you're here, you know, you're a creative, you're on our Conversations with Creatives podcast. And what happened was, was that that didn't resonate with you and it right. propelled you into another visual medium. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I started to, to draw. I, I don't remember the first time I picked up a, a pen and paper. I don't remember what inspired me to do it, but I remember that's all I did was draw. I drew cars. That was natural because I was from Detroit and that's the home of the automotive industry. Right. In the United States, I drew a lot of athletes as well. I drew a lot of football players, baseball players. This was back in the day when <laughs> men's tennis was really strong. I'm not sure if you remember this when John McEnroe, Jimmy yeah. Connors, 
uh, Yvonne Lindo, old school. You're like drawing um, the tennis players. <laughs> I used to draw the tennis players. So and funny. I remember in middle school, at Serbity Middle School, there were some of my classmates who used to pay me five or 10 cents to draw an athlete on the cover of their paperback uh, folders. And I would take that money and I would use it to buy candy and potato chips and things of that that's, nature. That's the corner store. You could go and get your little stuff. Yes, at the little corner store. Absolutely. Right, the little Swedish, like the, all the little candy. Yes. Right. right. Oh, my yeah, God. We used to buy now laters and. Yeah, the um, now later. Jolly yeah. Ranchers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, that, that actually, Shane, that was one of my next questions to you was, were you always creative? And can you remember a first memory of your own creativity? And I think what you're saying is, was that that was one of your first memories of your creativity is sort of not engaging with video games, but taking pen to paper or pencil to paper, whatever you had. 100%. And then it started to evolve into, because of men's tennis, I was I was interested in fashion. It was so weird. Well, no, I remember. I'm, I'm pausing you. Okay. I believe that's true because I remember liking the fashion of tennis. We're around the same age. Yes. So I remember liking the fashion of tennis at that time. I yes. Think, I think it goes super hand in hand. All the t-shirts, all yes. the shoes, the shoes, the, 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 the get, the, there was definitely like the sweatbands. The, yes. The whole Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But let me ask you this. Let's backtrack for a second because mm. was tennis just sort of like on in your house? At, like, where were you absorbing this tennis moment from when there were uh, all these sports to choose from? Like, yes. Who, where did you peep tennis? Like, where was that happening in your life? Well, that's, that's a great question. question because tennis it, was huge at the time. I mean, you, we did. Yeah. See that. It was, it was McEnroe. It was. Mm -hmm. So, but. Yvonne you, Lindo, Jimmy Connors. Can you remember think, where you saw it? Was it like on in a store down the street or like, I don't know. I think what, I think what happened was Sean and I, we started to, to caddy in middle school. Tell, uh, tell we, everyone who, who Sean is. Uh, Sean is my twin brother. Uh, we're identical twins. I was born five minutes before Sean. Uh, and you'll, you'll hear a lot about him, you know, throughout this, this podcast because he's obviously, I mean, I don't know life without him, but, uh, my brother and I, we were, we were so determined to make our own money because I remember my mom couldn't afford to buy us real Adidas or real Nikes, and we had the knockoffs. Um, our older brothers and sisters, they were sewing IZOD alligators on um, blank polo shirts for us. We wanted the IZOD with the matching pants and like the whole thing. Yes, yes, and we, and we wore tons of hand-me-downs. So, we were determined to get our own money because it wasn't going to come from um, my mom. Unfortunately, she just didn't have it and trying to feed seven kids. So one day we were at school, serving middle school on the West side. And this gentleman came in and wanted to introduce the, the, um, the career, I guess you would say of caddying being a golf caddy. And the fact that caddying could be a gateway to receive a full ride scholarship to go to a university. So that was the pitch and they were going around and they wanted to try and expose um, this job to people who would normally go to McDonald's or, or Burger King and work. So oh, Sean and I gave it a shot. And I think when we became golf caddies, so you're at a country club. And I think right, golf, just in the tennis. backdrop of that, you see the tennis and you're like, oh, okay, this is yes. these are like aspirational That's sports. Right. 
That's yeah, right. So I think that's probably I where it came. I remember from. that too about that time too. Is it like kind of golf and tennis mm-hmm. went hand in hand in a way? It's like yes. people that played golf were in. I mean, you could say that today, but I I remember that too about being a kid and like going to Flushing Meadow to see like the open or trying to, you know, watch the, like, I remember that that was just part of the whole culture. So now here, right. you, here so you and your brother swept up this opportunity to go and be caddies. Yes. Yes. And caddying, it was no joke. I mean, you're carrying a bag, a, whatever, a 30 pound bag on your back in the sun, for four hours in the sun. And sometimes you're carrying doubles. So you'll carry two bags at once to make double the amount of money. But it was all cash. And it was a great network. So now you're meeting all of these really smart, intelligent CEOs and executives at companies. Um, and then the opportunity of eventually having, having the opportunity to go to a great university, like the University of Michigan or Michigan State, full ride on a full ride scholarship. And I mean, we just put our head down and we took a deep dive into it and we did not turn back. I mean, we were caddying all the time and making money. I was going to say, do you feel, how old were you when you were caddying? We started caddying when we were, I think, 14. Yeah, maybe. 18 the whole time, the four years? Yes, yes. So do you you attribute, you know, you're a very personable person. I know you personally, like you're personable, you're well-adjusted, you're a people person. Did you learn those skills running around, you know, as a caddy, having to meet these strangers over and over again all day long? Is that where you honed your skill for um, reading people and, you know, uh, understanding people, would you say? Wow, you're good. (laughs) I've never thought about that, but I think that's exactly probably where it came from because now you're in a situation as a, as a 14, 15 year old kid and a black kid at that. And all the other caddies are black and then all the golfers are white men. Right. And then you're, you're carrying this bag, you're sweating and you feel manual labor. <laughs> yes, man, manual labor. And you're looking at all these white kids jumping off into the pool and enjoying their Saturdays. Yeah, like, what a crazy slice of life, huh? Yes. But then you have an opportunity to either or a decision to either have that overtake you, that that juxtaposition of what's going on and what you're seeing and what you're feeling. Or distract you. That's right, or distract you, or take it as a moment to learn and grow. And so that's exactly what I did. I I took it head on and, and engaged in conversations with the golfers and told my story and tried to learn about theirs. And now, to your point, I never even thought about it like that. I was much more comfortable with dealing with people who came from different backgrounds than I did. At a, at an and early, it totally prepared me for the future. At an early age. At an early age. Before college. Before wow. College, which, is mm. usually, which is usually when most people get thrown into this sort of big pool of people uh, that they've never been exposed to before, and they have to, like, you know, navigate that. Usually. Right. You got that head start before. Tell us the Good story. Stuff. Tell us the story of how you got into shoe design. Let's go there. So um, fast forward um, about five years. I'm at the University of Michigan. I've had. I'm in the School of Art and Design, and I am fully prepared to work for General Motors because I had an internship with at GM, not designing cars, but designing 
auto show exhibits. So the interior space that the cars are displayed in when you go to the auto shows. And I interned there for two years. They offered me a job out of school. I had a girlfriend and my family was in Detroit. I was fully prepared to stay there. But then a buddy of mine named James Carnes, who now works at uh, Adi Steel, but he received an internship at Adidas. And he asked me if I wanted to come out for an interview because at the time, this is 1996, Adidas was probably number four <laughs> in the world. Say it, say it the way the world says it. <laughs> yeah, I learned. What is Adidas? It's not Adidas. It's uh, Adidas because the founder, his name was Adi Dossler. Okay, but we're talking about Adi- for, for, other, for people who have been mispronouncing a name their entire lives, it's Adidas. <laughs> okay, this is true. Okay, Adidas. Um, and we were number four at the time, and he asked me if I wanted to come out for an interview. I told him I had a job lined up for a GM, and he said, dude, just come out for the, the free trip and the interview. I went out to Adidas in Portland, Oregon. They had a basketball court in the middle of the office. Everyone's wearing shorts and T-shirts. They, were had, they had keggers on Fridays. In the middle of the basketball court. You know, that that was a long time ago. Like now that sort of like common practice at sort of the, the cool the cool the cool places to work. But back then right. they were on right. it. They were like, we're so actually you you're kind of bringing me to my next question, um, which is did you have fun in Portland as a young man working for none other than Adidas or Adidas? Um, were you, what were you loving at that time? Can you think back to that time in your life? What were you loving? What were, what were you absorbing? Outside of loving the fact that I was making money, drawing, and creating. Yeah. I mean, that right there in itself blew my mind away. Because I was like, okay, there is a path that you can create a very lucrative career out of drawing. So that right there in itself put a smile on my face day to day. But um, what I really dove into is living in the Northwest. I knew nothing about the, the Northwest. Uh, I just thought it was the corniest place on earth because like, it wasn't LA, it wasn't Miami, it wasn't the Midwest, but I got into hiking. I mean, just connecting with nature. Um, I got into motorcycle riding, um, going to the coast. Um, I mean, it's just, it was just really an education into decompression um, not being on the go all the time and really opening up your mind to to feel inspiration come to you. And yeah. that is what I enjoyed the most about being in more of a quiet town that really thrived on just getting outdoors and connecting. Portland, Oregon, we're talking Portland, about. Oregon. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, you know, as a native New Yorker, you know, born and raised in Manhattan and Queens, you know, I have those same sort of notions about, LA and Miami and Chicago, right? And, you know, maybe even Detroit. And, um, and the first time that I went to the PAC Northwest was um, after I left magazines and I had to do a season styling top chef in Seattle. Mm. And when you're styling a show like that, when you're on a big like production of Magical Elves, like Bravo production like that, as a crew member, you you really do you're there for that month you might be living at the you know uh, one i don't forgot the name of the hotel i think it was one of those big chain hotels but 
mm-hmm. you have to sort of dive into that city and you have to dive into that place. Yes. And, um, and I learned, and I, I hate to say it as, you know, I don't want to be that snobby New Yorker, but I, there was very little that I knew about the pack Northwest and it's a hundred percent magical. A hundred percent. Like, yes. and then later after that, I went to, I went to Portland on a vacation, you know, and it, it's just, you know, I, I hate to say it that I was, you know, did not, I, I did not realize how wonderful that part of the country was. So you were just soaking all that up, right? Absolutely. I remember it took me a while to adjust. I mean, being a city boy, I remember going into work on Mondays and asking some of my colleagues, they would ask me, Shane, what'd you do? I was like, oh, I went to this club, I went to this <laughs> club on Friday, this bar on Saturday night. And then I would ask them what they did. And they were, oh, I went windsurfing and I went uh, skiing or I went jet skiing. I was just thinking to myself, these people were doing more before 2 p.m. that I did like the entire day. And that's when I said, okay, maybe I need to shift the way I approach just life in general and, and getting outside of my comfort zone and embracing that kind of <laughs> what we call a granola lifestyle back in the day. So I right. started to wear fleece. Right. I was wearing simple shoes and Birkenstocks. <laughs> I was a tree hugger by the time I left Portland. <laughs> no, it, it expanded you as a human being for sure. Right? 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've worked as a designer and a creative director in the shoe division for so many brands. Name those brands. Name the, name the greatest hits. Okay. Obviously, there's um, Adidas, and I've consulted and worked in-house with Fila, Converse, Puma, Royal Elastics, Merle, Keen, Under Armour, uh, creative director for Baz, DKNY Men's, uh, you name it. Rockport. You know. Rockport, yes, Rockport. Sometimes I forget about some of the main ones like Rockport. <laughs> right, right. And doing designing every classification of footwear you can imagine. Men's, women's, kids. I mean, coming out and designing athletic shoes for some of the best athletes in the world at Adidas, I mean, just gave me the foundation and the confidence to design anything. I feel and, like we've talked about this a lot over the years. Like, that's probably one of the first things that, like, you know, I can just harken back to those times when I first met you. But I think that's probably like a conversation that we had. Like you had a, an incredible first job and I, I right. like my first job in fashion, I like found my way into fashion. I had no connections there. Like I, I could not have chosen a better place to have landed. So I feel like you and I have talked about that over the years. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Describe, can you describe what a creative director like you for a larger shoe manufacturer um, does on a daily basis? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because the, the title creative director is definitely something that designers nowadays aspire to have. I've always aspired to, to, have, to be a creative director, but I knew what it encompassed, uh, mainly because my mentor to this day, his name is Peter Moore. He was the creative director of Adidas when I was there. Um, and basically, just to give you a full scope of what the, the, the job entails, and then I'll go into like the day-to-day, but you're really the, the conscious of the brand. And as a creative director, you're overseeing every creative touch point that the brand has with its consumers. So I from- that's thrilling. That's a thrilling position to be in, really. Absolutely. Because- now you're not just in the trenches and there's nothing wrong with being in the trenches, but you're just not 
worried about this one shoe or this one jacket or this one bag and how that's going to resonate with customers. Right. And the deadlines, you are actually charged with making sure all of the designs, all of the visual merchandising, all of the marketing, all of the color palettes, all of the materials that are coming from all of these different units, all of these different designers with the input of project managers and developers come together cohesively to look and feel like it came out of one studio and it communicates the vision that you set forth in the beginning of the season, which would have been whatever, a year, a year ago until the, right. the time it comes out. So that's pretty much the overall scope of the creative director. And on a day-to-day basis, one day you could be in a meeting looking at concepts for the following season. Then you have samples coming in right for um, confirmation fits. So you're doing fittings on models. You're another day you're going to a photo shoot and you're styling models, getting the lighting right and um, the poses correct. Um, It's just, it's all encompassing. And then you're traveling overseas, whether it be China, whether it be El Salvador, Brazil, Europe for For real manufacturing tasks. Yes. Real manufacturing tasks. And not only are you there making changes and revisions to product, but then before that even starts, you are giving presentations to your factory and manufacturing partners about where the vision of the brand is going so that they still feel um, charged to make the best product for you. Feeling a part of things. Yes. Yes. And there are some days you find yourself communicating with your overseas licensing partners. So you may have a, distri- a distributor in the UK and they are, they have the right to design and develop their own product. But at the same time, they take our lead from a seasonal trend standpoint, from a brand vision standpoint, logos, making sure that everyone's in line with logo usage, brand identifications. So it's, it's a really fascinating position to have because you're finally using all of these tools that you procured over the years from being an entry-level designer, a senior designer, a design director. And then finally you get to a point where you have enough tools that you can start trusting your instincts and you see it and you have to make decisions quickly if it feels right or not. And you have to trust your instincts. Right. That's the point of being a director. That's, that's what's, what's, what people look to you for. How is right. your creative? How has creativity in your work ebbed, flowed, or changed over the years? Would you say? You touched Ooh. on this. You said that you know now yeah. it's all encompassing. But what are you doing now that you didn't do then? What were you doing then that you don't do now at all? That's that's a great question. Um, one thing that I used to do was just start drawing right away. I mean, I could get a project brief on my desk or I would give briefs to my designers and we would just all start drawing. And it's because it's the funnest part of the process. Everyone wants to just create something aesthetically beautiful. And I became really prolific at it and fast and furious with the concepts. But what I've learned over time is that if you step back for a second before you even start to do this visual exercise or this aesthetic exercise of what uh, a shoe or a bag or a jacket may feel like and step away from the office 
take a walk, do some research, go into stores, go into a museum, think about what the opportunity is that you're, you're de- you will eventually design for, what the competition is doing. What can you visualize the collection looking like a year from now when you look back and start to take a, a little bit more of a foundational approach and building that strong foundation of research and competency before you start laying pen to paper. It's interesting. So, I feel yeah. like, I'm to cut you off, but I feel like I've had this, had this conversation um, with myself many times and with certain people before, and I, you articulated it in a way that I had not heard it been articulated before, which is that, like for me, the way that I, it's like you have to build space around your creativity. Like when you right. don't have that kind of, when I don't have that kind of space, like great ideas don't necessarily come. And that's, right. that's how I, that's yes. how I've articulated it. I don't think that's a great articulation of it, but I think that you've just, you've just expressed that perfectly. Like if, unless you have space, which means yes. time for research and time for reflection and time for mm-hmm. pause and time, it, it you're you cannot be as creative i don't think yeah I, I think i think you articulated it like really well um when you just start going you're you're already on this treadmill right and you're, you're just in this mind state of doing so your your brain and your mind and your spirit is so cluttered that the ideas they just can't get in the inspiration can't come in and inspiration is all around us and until you're able to step away and get that clarity and allow that inspiration to come in, you're just going to be drawing in circles and you're going to look at all these beautiful renderings and sketches on the wall and none of them are really, you know, solving the opportunity or the challenge that you've set forth. So Rising to the occasion. You're 100% right. Yeah. Rising to the occasion. Do you enjoy managing people or do you prefer to work solo? <laughs> I, I love working in a team environment. It's, I, and I've experienced both. I ran my own brand for 12 years with my brother, Sean. It was called Detney by Shane and Sean. And I worked, I, obviously, and you consulted with us and you were, <laughs> you were so far ahead of where we were, at least from um, a creativity standpoint and where we could go. I really, I say this every time I see you. I, I know. I, I, like, I, you I, get such a, I get such an ego boost every time we have this conversation. <laughs> we would still, anyway, we would still have our brand and we probably, I probably would be calling in right now from somewhere in Central Pay on a yacht if I were to listen to you more. Well, listen, maybe um, we could still do that one day. Okay. All right. Um, so, and I was working in a bubble. Um, having my own brand and I, I really missed working in a very collaborative environment around other smart, creative people with imaginations that I could bounce ideas off of. And that's, that's, and I, that's the environment that I, I thrive in and a, like a culture of winning. Um, when there's an overall spirit of connectivity and support, and growing up through the industry with brands like Adidas and, and Rockport and One and working with all the other brands I've told you about has, a, has allowed me to be what I feel now is a pretty decent leader as well. I like to mentor. 
I yeah. love to teach. Um, I love to see designers grow and I still love to learn from them as well. So nothing against designers who like to work alone. I like to paint alone, <laughs> but as far as creating product for a particular customer in a particular market, I I'd prefer working in a group environment. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that I've known you forever and, and you've all, you, you and your brother who I know as well. Um, and the rest of your family, like you've always had that mindset, um, of, you know, mentoring and paying it forward and, you know, collaboration, but I'm sure you are, um, you, you working with you is probably a gift, I would say for the people that are around you. What inspires you, Shane? Is it, what inspires you? Is it pop culture? Is it visuals like shapes and colors? Is it concepts? Can you put a finger on sort of like what inspires you as a whole? What inspires me now are ideas and things that I see coming out that I've never seen before. I never, if, if it's something I never would have thought about, that inspires the hell out of me, man. Just to know that there's another human being out there that have, has created a shape of a, a shoe or a car or a bag or a painting that I never would have thought of. Uncharted territory. Uncharted territory. Out of the box. Yes. Absolutely. That's what inspires me the most. Um, And I can appreciate it. I can salute it. I can learn from it. It makes me better. And, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm inspired by just solitude, hearing birds, seeing deer. Nature. (laughs) Um, Nature. Nature. Um, so I think it's like this combination of being inspired by the artistic, the artistic community, the creative community. And we have a little bit of that up here. When I say up here, I'm talking about upstate New York and the Hudson Valley, Northern Catskill region. I find myself having dinner parties or being at dinner parties where I'm looking around and it's other artists, people who make art for a living. Um, hat makers, uh, shop owners who make furniture, and just creatives, people who have so many different disciplines, but they're so passionate about what they do. And we're all supporting each other to the point where I know for sure without my friend, uh, Behita Dolich, who's a milliner, I would not have painted his painting. But she encouraged me. She was like, Shane, no, like, you have a lot to say. You should, you should put, put, a, put some, some paint to canvas. And she gave me the confidence in the same, it's like cyclical. We're all doing that for each other. And it reminds me of, you know, when you think back of, you know, the turn of the century and you read these books or you see these movies about artists and designers and writers getting together at these cafes. You know, like Dorothy Parker and the Vicious Circle and Renaissance and Hemingway and Paris. There we go. In Paris. Yes. I'm a big fan. Hemingway and how they all had this collective. And it's not something that just has to be in the books. This is, we could live this existence. We just have to connect more. And that's why I admire what, what you're doing and, and bringing all of these creatives together. You have always been an inspiration for me from that standpoint, um, even from not only business and your ideas that you have and the vision that you have, but how you're able to bring people together and feel 
comfortable in that space, feel safe in that space to share ideas. Because sometimes, you know, we get competitive. It's just our nature, especially living in a city like New York. And I think we need to share and talk more and be more, you know, deferential and empathetic and and more open because we, there's more, there's space for all of us to, to thrive. I couldn't agree more. Um, Let's, let's talk about travel for a second, because I know that you, you're really fond of travel. What happens to you as a person and as a creative when you travel, Shane? Okay. So this is when I like to be alone as well, is when I travel. <laughs> I found that for me, magic happens when I travel alone. Meaning there's this safe place I have in New York City because I'm around my friends and family and a place I've been living for 20 years in upstate. But man, growing up in, in a big family, I never thought that I could travel alone. But then when I finally start to, started to do it, you end up just meeting people like that you would never met before. Because if you're traveling with someone else, you kind of stick into your own bubble. But then when you're alone, you're forced to say, excuse me, um, where's, you know, the most interesting bar to go to, or is there a library around here that you recommend? Is there a bookstore? And next thing you know, you're hanging out with these people all weekend, meeting people you would have never met before. And so I find magic in traveling and traveling alone. And I've had the, I've been very blessed to travel pretty much in every continent. And there are some certain places that they take me, you know, they and take that me was to my another next, That was my next question for you. But before we move on to that, I, I will just say like, to, just to add to what you were saying, um, not only sort of what you just said about traveling alone, but it, it also allows your experiences, you know, it, it's very true actually. You know, there are plenty of people that wouldn't even think to travel alone. It wouldn't even cross their minds. They're never going to do it. To some right. people, to some people, travel is best enjoyed when you can share it with somebody. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I would say to that is, and to add to what you said, and I'm sure you agree, is that it also allows the experiences that you're having to land a certain way. And, to, you know, so it's sort of like not only are you doing and seeing and talking to people and experiencing those destinations that way, but you're, it's, you're also those experiences are landing with you in a way that they never would if you had the distraction of being with other people. Um, agree. So totally you, agree. You were about to touch on this. Um, so what kind of travel destinations inspire you most? Wow. So I can speak to two specific cities and, and I think there are probably parallels between the two that makes me connect with them. Um, one being Copenhagen, I never would have thought of Copenhagen. I lived in Barcelona for two years. Yeah. Lovely city. I mean, my nickname is Shane from Spain. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, But I would say as of late, over the last seven to eight years, it's been a mix of Copenhagen and Tokyo. They've been the two cities that when I go there, there's just such an appreciation for the fashion, the food, design. the lifestyle, design, and, and, and design and fashion in a way where it's so simplistically approached, where it's just about the 
the quality of the material, the simplicity of the cut, the subtleness of the, the color palettes, and the purpose, like it's built with purpose as well. And it's really inspiring to see that approach because in New York, I mean, we're, you know, you're chasing fashion and a lot of times it's fast fashion. So you're constantly turning over and over. Yeah. What's that? The new and the next. Yes. The new and the next. Absolutely. Which kind of goes back to this painting was in and out like season after season, you're designing something totally new. But when I found that when I've gone to these two cities and I've bought garments, whether it could be an overcoat, it could be a pair of pants, it could be just a wallet or hat. There's a timelessness to it that just endures and is really inspiring. And then there's just the lifestyle part of it. Um, Copenhagen, riding around on a bicycle, seeing the lakes, having these beautiful panoramic views. And I mean, Tokyo is a lot like New York because it does you know, have a lot of tall buildings, but man, you step outside of just the inner parts of Shibuya and you get to some of the other um, neighborhoods, Aoyama and uh, um, what's the, uh, the other one that I love, Desayumo. You get out and then obviously you get to Yokota and Kyoto you're just in a whole new different world. And on any given day, like today, I'll have mm. a shirt, pants, and a hat on all either from Copenhagen or Tokyo. Mm. You know what it is too? I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna add to that. I'm gonna add to your, to that. I am going to venture to say that it is the combination of the Denmark-Tokyo aesthetic that also gets you going. They're so totally different. I think I think you're you're like you're that hybrid is mm. is, is is what you you're you know is hits you at your core. Yes, yes, absolutely. I love that. You became an entrepreneur in two thousand four when you joined. I was about to say your identical twin brother Sean, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, so Shane and Sean, identical twins. Um, part of a huge family. We talked about that earlier too. Um, and in 2004, the two of you joined forces in creating the shoe collection Detney. Its name was called from the two places where each of you live that influence you greatly, right? The line, right. Is, no, the line is no longer. Um, you had a 10-year run. What do you reflect upon most when you think of those 10 years between 2004 and 2014? I think of the, the challenges that we had in building a brand that people ultimately came to recognize. The, the, the challenges were, they were tough, man. The hurdles that we had to overcome, um, not having any financial backing, being you know two brothers from humble beginnings, and just working our asses off relentlessly on a day-to-day -day basis and being rejected, you know, not receiving orders when we felt like we should have received orders, whether it be from Nordstrom's or, or Macy's at the time. Not being able to control those elements. Yes. Yeah. So the, the challenges were tough, but I'll tell you the triumphs that we experienced in those 10 years, we finally receiving the Nordstrom's orders and Macy's orders and, opening up our flagship store in Nolita, being on a cover of Black Enterprise, being in old magazine 
and being on a Wendy Williams show. I mean, these were monumental accomplishments for us. And I look back with so much pride. Um, but then also the growth that I saw between myself and my brother and we, it, it challenged every bit of us in our being to be best friends, business partners, twin brothers. It was so much pressure put on us. And I saw our relationship go to shit. And we, yeah. I give Sean a lot of credit um, because there was a time in our company where things got really tough and we just couldn't, actually it was, actually it was around the time when things were good in our company, um, but we were growing so fast. Um, the pressure came on top of us to make the right decisions. And Sean was the one who recommended that we see a therapist. And we yeah. saw a therapist and I'm telling you, um, I take pride in being this very reflective, thoughtful person, but for him to recommend that for us because we weren't getting anywhere was the best thing that ever happened to our relationship. And we're the closest we've ever been. So I'm really proud of the way that, you know, we were able to kind of navigate those, you know, really uncertain times to become where we are now. I mean, we're yeah. closest we've ever been. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I, I just, it, in experiencing like the both of you at that time, um, you were the create, you know, to, to go back to that like creativity thing, it's like you were the creative mind and I can't recall exact instances, but I do remember like feelings of like this person, like the, you not, not wanting, you wanted to be like unbridled and you wanted it and, and right. Sean sort of coming in as sort of the business, like sort of figurehead for the brand and, you know, speaking practically and speaking about deadlines. And I, I remember yes. the difference between the two of you. Um, yeah, there was a stark difference. And I think what we were able to realize um, throughout our journey was that we're, even though we're identical twins, we have the same DNA, we're still different human beings. And we have different talents. We have different ways of looking at life and individual situations. And it wasn't until we were able to recognize that, that we were able to coexist in a much better way. But then I would say the last thing that um, came that I, that I really appreciated from our experience was the fact that we had to pretty much do everything. You know, when you work for a big organization, there are people who are just charged with specific parts of the process. And we had to do everything. Well, tell and me about now, they also just, <laughs> you know, this whole the idea that you didn't have this, you know, great, huge investor. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, it's very easy to get very, um, you to see what's happening around you with other people that are getting that kind of funding and sort yes. of trying to go after it on your own. That, that, that can tax the brain just right then and there alone. Right. So, right. Right. But then it also, I was able to get an incredible amount of, or procure a bunch of tools that I would have not been able to um, to receive if I didn't do all of those tasks on my own. Legwork. Yeah. So by the time I went back into corporate America six years ago, I, I mean, I, I, it sounds cocky to say this, but I think Sean is finding this as well. You just end up, <laughs> I'm not saying running circles around people that you work with, but you just, you're, you become a problem solver and not just someone who says, oh, I can't do this. We don't have the resources. You just, 
you find your way because that's what you've been doing for the last 10 years. You, you've, you have this ingenuity, you have this, this self-starting type of mentality and the fact that we can get there um, approach that you become such a valued asset to a large organization because you approach it as an entrepreneur. And I found that I would not have been as successful and, and got to the ascended to where I am right now without having that 10 years of just doing everything on yeah. my own and on our own. That's experience that you cannot be replicated unless you are in those trenches and you're putting in that time. And for 10 years at that, Shane, who's had the most influence in your career over the years and why? Um, you <laughs> I mean, I, it's between two people. Um, when I say the influence of, of, of my career, I, I definitely have to say that I can't say anything, especially in design without talking about Peter Moore. Um, because he was the first person I ever saw as a champion for design and creativity. So you imagine being at a, at a brand like Adidas and the marketing and sales behemoth that it is and having someone say, no, listen to us. We know what we're talking about over in design. I know you don't believe in this technology or this innovation, but we're going to push forward with it anyway, because it's the right thing to do for the athlete. And man, that was eye opening to me that a creative could also be a leader could also have a strong voice and could be pragmatic and could be powerful. smart and intelligent. And so I think when people describe me as a designer, they always throw in the fact that I work really well across, you know, disciplines with marketing sales and things of that nature, because that's what I saw. I'm another great skill, another, you know, hard to come by skill. Usually, you know, a lot of times creatives can't or won't or don't do those things. They, and I know, and I also think that we become victims of other people's words because words have power. And if you constantly, right, exactly. People start to try to put you in a box and you I start believing it. And they'll say, oh, well, you're a designer. You know, the designers are all they emotional. In your wheelhouse. They're, not, they're not good with numbers. They're not good with management. I hate how, do you, how the hell do you know? Well, you that's, know? Like, that, you that's know a hard thing to sort of fight as you, as you, you know, as uh, I would say like that, that's a difficult thing. Like I, I can relate to that as, you know, um, as you sort of build your career and navigate your career, it's, it's mm -hmm. very difficult to sort of fight off the people that just have to see the world in that way. Well, that, right. that's not a numbers person or that person doesn't have yes. business of fashion or then who, what does this person know about e-commerce or right. you know, that's the thing. It's actually when you put in the work that someone like mm -hmm. you has put in, it's very it's very possible that you know quite a lot about all these different things. And it, all of that can coexist in one place. Like the designer, the creative can be the businessman can be yes. marketing genius can be the technical dude. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I've always refused to have someone put me in a box. And I would say the second person is Sean. Um, this dude has been a sounding board for me when I didn't want to hear his opinion, <laughs> but now I will, on a daily basis, I'm asking him about things at work, um, logos, um, mantras, um, painting, like ideas about like, you know, the series I'm working on. 
there's no even iota of success that you know I've been able to to garner over the years without Sean being there for me to kind of give me that that confidence and being a sounding board just giving me an ear someone I can just trust and I know that what I'm hearing back from him is coming from the best place yeah somebody you can trust for sure what do you what do you do to get yourself in the creative zone let's talk tactical stuff yeah I, so first of all i have to be out of i have to be in a creative space first of all like that my environment is so important like well that's you know i'm not to stop you but that's mm -hmm. literally the next question um because yes. this is something that i think about a lot and that i know I know how I respond to things. There are spaces that I respond to. There's spaces that I do not respond to. Right. It seems very weird. I think there are certain people you can share that with that will never get what you're saying. And mm. so my next question, you know, number one is, how do you get yourself into the creative zone? And my sec next question was, how important are your surroundings? <laughs> right. So the surroundings for me is everything. Um, I is... I've always prided, prided myself in being able to wear a different hat in different situations. But for me to get in, in a true creative zone, the environment has to be right. The, the, it needs to be set. I need to feel comfortable. I need to feel safe. I need to feel calm. I can't be in the space where I'm cooking also, or there's a television going on, or there's people around. I need to be in a quiet, bright, clean space so for example I think one of the reasons I haven't been able to paint in a long time is because I, I just can't bring myself to paint in a living room or a dining room and I think I struggled when I worked from home and my studio was in my apartment because my bed is there and my living You're on space the lower east side of Manhattan right yeah on the lower east side of Manhattan so I spent money to get a design studio so the environment is everything so for me that's my foundation and then after that, music. <laughs> I can't. What's your music? To you. Do you, what's your, you have go-to music, or does it always have to be music? It of any kind. So if I'm doing business, so if 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 I'm returning emails, if I'm doing budgets, it, it's instrumental, classic move, classic music. I mean, people will come into my office and be like, "Wow, Shane, you listen to like <laughs> Bach or what?" <laughs> Like, what like, is going on words. here? And I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is like my zen. But, but when it comes to being creative, drawing, painting, sketching, the music changes, but it's something I connect with. It could be Frank Ocean. Um, it could be John Mayer. Or it, I could like pump it up and let it, you know, it could be Drake. Um, I just need the right zone. I need to get into that zone, as uh, as Swiss Beast would say. I have to get into a zone. It's funny because as you're answering this question, right on Lafayette and Howard, like music just began blasting as you started <laughs> this. Um, Shane, do you have a designated desk area in both of your homes? You live in the city, and you have a wonderful place in the country. Do you have a designated desk area in each? And can you describe both if you do have that in both places? Desk a desk work. as far desk as doing or work. work area. Desk or work area. So in the Lower East Side, I do not. And that, that's on purpose. 
I my office is you know, you in Midtown. That's right. my go-to. When I go to the LES, it's I cold. need to decompress. I mean, it's already loud outside. <laughs> I'm right <laughs> off of the land sea. You really are. I live, <laughs> I live on the, the top bridge. of that fish. There's like yes. the yeah. I, I, I don't have a desk there. I used to in that same apartment. I've been in this apartment for 12 years and mm -hmm. I used to have a desk there. I used to work from there and I was pretty miserable having drawings scattered around my bedroom. I just can't live that way at this stage in my life. I need to, when I get home, I'm home, I'm decompressing and I'm recharging for the creativity to pick up the next day. And if I want to work and really get into a zone of sketching. And I don't sketch a lot anymore as creative director, but when I do, I'll go up to the office on the weekend when there's no meetings and I'll just get into a zone. No one's around. I cut the music up loud and I'll start sketching. There you go. Yeah. Upstate New York. This is really interesting. Since the shutdown, I, and I was working from home. <laughs> I have a four bedroom house here and I was trying to decide which room would be my design room or my artistic creative room and i could not bring myself to put that in any bedroom any dining room at all really? so i reimagined i couldn't that's do it that's very interesting that's yes. interesting. so why i busted my butt what's that why is that why do you think you didn't want to you didn't want to destroy the vibe the yes the, the energy in those rooms yes you didn't want to like taint the energy that's it that these rooms, they all have their own specific kind of ethos and energy. And it's all curated. It's, it's been curated from the beginning. It's an old farmhouse that was built in 1890. I, I gutted it and I've curated every space. And for me to come in and kind of Did you do all the work yourself? Pardon? Did you do all the work yourself, the renovation? No, I, I had no. a couple of contractors. Um, I designed the whole interior myself, but um, I had a couple of contractors and carpenters that helped me like really build it up to what it is now. And so I reimagined half of my garage to be a, a studio. So that was my solution. I take I like this, this beat up utilitarian garage and dry, I drywall a part of the space. I put carpet down. I had a couple heaters because in March it was still cold and now it's like extremely hot. So I have a couple air conditions in there. And now that's my creative space. Now half of the garage is my art studio. That's art slash design studio. That's really beautiful. On the, on the same line of what we're talking about and you, you did, you sort of, you talked about how important this is to you. But what elements need to be present in your home in order to make you feel settled and content? Can you get like granular about that? And in my home, yeah. If you could dial it down to like the elements, what are the elements that need to be? What are the core elements that need to be present in your home to make you feel settled and content? First and foremost, it's aromatherapy for me. I have a diffuser, which and sense are you? That Yes, that brings me so much internal. Because I, I meditate. What are you burning? What are you burning? What are you burning? Oh, rosemary, eucalyptus, um, um, lemongrass. I, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm that type of person. That anything that me makes me feel like I'm in a spa. You ever go to a spa and you feel so 
comfortable and so relaxed. And you're like, why can't I get this at home? I need to, I need to you, package this. You can if you burn like a really good lemongrass rosemary hybrid in your diffuser. That's what I'm talking Okay, all right, there you go. I'm, I might do that. Yeah, I, might, I have, I have uh, diffusers in every room in, my, in our place. There we go. Yeah. So it starts, with, it starts with the diffuser. And then I have a vinyl player that a good friend of mine bought for me. Gorgeous. And I'll put on some Miles Davis. Mm-hmm you know, or some, some Coltrane. And then I look out over a field, like through a window. If I could do that, life is good. I'll pick up a book from Baldwin, Hemingway. Um, I'm reading a book right now on cherry blossoms. Um, I'm always looking for, I'll read like three books at a time. I get, I get um, ideas from all of my friends because you know, just as a creative, I get bored really quick and I'm moving on. But if, I, if you could give me those three, some really nice music in the background from a vinyl player, some aromatherapy, and then a really good backdrop of nature, that's living right there. Books, which, you talk about books, which is really interesting because it, it's, you know, books are like the thorn in my own personal side lately because if you've ever been to my space and our workspace, there, there are books everywhere. Yeah, that's I was, gorgeous. I was, an English, I, I was an English major at Villanova. And anyone will tell you that, like, as a kid, you know, I was always reading, like, people mm. playing, and I was that kid that was, like, reading books from cover to cover. And I love books. And, you know, what I've noticed in the last, like, you know, few years, probably since I launched Story and Rain, um, is that, you know, I like to keep lists and I like to stay balanced, you know, but the one thing that will fall to the wayside the quickest mm. is reading. Like mm. that is the thing that just gets hits the bottom of the to-do yes. and, it, and it's, it's getting to a point where it really kills me because it's, I know that it is so connected to who I am right? Um, and it just hits the bottom of the list for whatever reason, like all these things come up and, and the reading gets to the bottom of the list. So I, I find it really interesting that. Reading, Why do you think that is? Why do you think know. that is? Why do you think it gets put? Cause I, I, I feel know, like that happens like to me too. There are books right by my in my, um, my nightstand right now. Yeah. I actually have a big sort of caddy thing that's under my bed that's mm. filled with, you know, newspapers and magazines always. I mean, always, but also right. books. And I actually, the minute the pandemic started, I mm. took the thing, the rolling, that thing, the caddy from under my bed and I rolled it right out from under my bed and I rolled it right next to my couch and in my living right. And guess what? It's literally been untouched the entire time. <laughs> right. I wonder if there's something to people like us who we get so inspired for doing, right? Like it, it, there's an action. Whether it, and that action could be a podcast, it could be um, writing, it could be painting, it could be drawing, or it could be working out that the act of like doing and, and, and the, and the, um, the gratitude that, and, and the gratification that comes along with what you do. Whereas reading, you have to actually force yourself to be still. Yes. Well, like you actually, you have to get into you, you say, okay, I'm going to lay down and I'm going to yeah. read this book. And that is a, a challenge in itself. So I know that I wish I was reading more. Well, and I wonder if that has something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 
I'm a doer. Um, I don't, I come from doer type of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know at the flip on the flip side, I do know that like that reading has and will give me something really, really incredible. So it, it kind of kills me every day. Every time I see that big under the bed book yes. by my couch, it <laughs> makes, it makes me mad. And I always have these aspirations, but just by you anyway, by you. Well, I have, I have, that, I have a, one thing that I do to force myself to read is every morning I have a morning practice and these personal development practices I that I it. do. I love uh, it because hold yeah, on. And one of them is reading. So I have to force myself every well, day at least to read. Well, there you go. Like I, I know we're on, on the right track with our podcast when one question just sort of bleeds into the next. That's my next question for you, Shane. We've had a little bit of a conversation about this recently, actually just before the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. in great detail but my next question for you was exactly that how do you start your day i start my day doing a personal development practice called the miracle morning um not to you know try to plug anything because it really isn't it's something that really changed my life and so i wake up before i pick up my telephone and start looking at text messages or emails i Basically, I get to the floor, and the first thing I do is meditate. Um, me personally, I'm not um, someone that could just meditate to silence. I like guided meditation, so I do guided meditation. After that, um, I will do visualization. I do my affirmations. I read and I write, um, and I do some exercise. So that is my daily practice routine. Again, it's called the Miracle Morning, and it's been a life changer for me. I've been doing it now for about five years and I can contribute or that, uh, or tri- sorry, attribute that. And then also my weekly meetings with my psychologist, Dr. With Dr. Nancy as the two catalysts for the most change I've ever happened in my life. That's amazing. I tend to get creative at night. Are you a night owl or do you get your, do your creative juices get flowing? At night, or do you are you like you know in keeping with your early morning? Are you getting to bed early these days? Has your clock, I'm definitely <laughs> has your clock reset? Has your clock? Yeah, I reset my clock a while ago. Yeah. I'm getting to bed a lot earlier now. I'm getting to bed at around there are weekdays at around ten o'clock. So straight up old people time. No, um, that's maybe. not that bad. It's, it's not that bad. I think when once you creep into like the nine p.m. <laughs> That's when I'll start making fun of you. Okay, so, so you got to keep it double digits. Okay. Yeah, Ten double digits. Yeah, you're cool. You're, my time. You're still cool. You're cool. Um, um, I've been, I've been asking many of my guests about whether they've felt more or less creative during the pandemic, and surprisingly, the numbers kind of split. But I know your answer to this question, and, and we've already touched on it. You've recently re- uh, rediscovered your passion for painting. Shane, share exactly how and when that happened. So I have been putting off painting for 20 years. I mean, it's just been something that I always had this excuse. I know now there's been an excuse, but I would tell everyone, oh, you know, I'm going to get back into painting. It just sounded cool to say that. Well, it's like my Um, book excuse. It's probably like my book excuse, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think what happened and what I was able to realize is that I just – didn't know what I was going to say mm. if I started to paint. Like, what was I going to say? There's so well, many there's creative many artists, people like, out there. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, 
you need to have something you need to have motivation and something to say. Right, right. I wanted to have a voice and and also an aesthetic. And so when the shutdown happened and the pandemic really kicked in and space opened up, I'm talking about like true space, not only just internal spiritual space, but then factories were closed down. So time opened up a little bit too. So I became a little bit more flexible and I had an old canvas sitting around and I said to myself, I'm, I am going to create or I'm going to dictate the story that's going to eventually be told when this is all over because it's going to end. You know, this shutdown is going to end, whether it be through a vaccine or if it just comes through everything leveling out and us becoming a lot more vigilant about how we protect ourselves. We're going to get back to normalcy. And I'm, I don't want to be one of the individuals who look back and say, oh, I was bored and I just gained this weight and I just sat around drinking. No, I want to. You want to be part of something epic. Yeah. Yes. And so I started right away to sketch about what I could paint and what it could be. And that's pretty much how it happened. I would say I was maybe two weeks into the shutdown, probably early April, where after I sketched about 20 different ideas, and they all were extremely different, that I started to, I kept going back to this one sketch of a shoe that was embellished with cherry blossoms. And that's how it started. Hmm. It's incredible. Here's another question for you. Just a simple question. Um, as an African-American man of your age, who's learned a lot, seen a lot, experienced a lot at this point in your life, do you think about the ways to move the current conversation on racial equality in the U.S. forward as a creative? I'm still trying to figure that out. I think that there's so many different layers to um, what's going on right now and, and ways forward. Um, I mean, we can start with macro ideas of, you know, policy changes that need to happen from the top down through government um, initiatives, police reform, um, and then private levels. I mean, there's companies that need to change their hiring policies because there's so many unbiased, also unconscious biases that are happening when people who are in power, like white men, in the way that they hire, you know, they're going to hire someone that just it feel, they feel like there's a connection. Maybe this person reminds them of their nephew or their son or a cousin. And then it goes all the way down to the personal level of when blacks, if there's a, not a black person around and it's just a group of white people and someone says something sideways, who's gonna step up and say, okay, actually that's not, that's not cool. And so I've been going through this journey of life and having so many different traumatic experiences as a black man growing up, um, primarily in Detroit, but then also you having incidents with- Do you want to get into it or is that beside the point? What's that? You want to name one or, do you, is, it, or is that beside Oh the yeah, point? I want to, I definitely want to talk about two of them. It's been therapy to talk about these, these, two, right. these two main incidents um, because I haven't really talked about them until um, over the last couple months or so. And one incident happened um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I was, I think I was probably, probably a freshman in college or a sophomore, straight A student, University of Michigan, one of the <laughs> most. I mean, like, I, I'm in awe of, of you in college. You were like doing it all at 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And I was interning at 
a company called Steelcase in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's an office furniture manufacturer. And I was doing, I was a design intern. I was driving around with two of my friends who both were engineering students at Michigan. Super smart gentlemen. And, you know, we get pulled over by the cops. Um, two white cops. Um, they told us to get out the car, um, get on our knees. We had our hands behind our head and they had guns pointed at us. And I remember being so afraid. I went from being everything being just great to right. right. This could be it. And I remember people from the neighborhood coming out on their porches saying, please leave those boys alone. They haven't done anything wrong. And I remember asking the cops what why did they pull us over? And they said the gentleman they said the guy in the back was making suspicious moves and I was in the back seat. I don't know what that means. But it was basically being pulled over by being black. And that's one of the first times I felt like there was maybe a different set of rules for someone like me because I know that my, my friends and my roommate at the time was this white guy named uh, Jason Quisenberry, which friends to this day, never experienced. And we didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> like, and it really shook me to the core. And then the next year, Sean and I, we were in Chicago. And we got into a scuffling match with um, two bouncers. Um, <laughs> I'm not laughing because it happens. <laughs> yes, How old were you? Happens, you know, like, trying to get to a bar. I'm know? like channeling back. I, mean, I don't <laughs> even laugh at all. Please. No, it's true. Nobody like, take offense, but I'm kind of like, yeah. So uh, you're, at a, you're at some big club in Chicago. What happens? I mean, this happens all the damn time. What you happens? Know? You what happens? Yeah. So yeah, we, we, we get into a push-in match with um, a couple of bouncers. And then the police kind of come up and then obviously the bouncers, these, these big white guys and all the police are white. They basically said, they pointed at us. They're going to take the, the bouncer's side. And I remember I was getting roughed up a little bit, kind of grabbed and, um, by one of the police officers. And I started looking at his badge because I found, uh, someone told me to always like get a name. Yeah, get a, yeah, figure, right. So I just, I was just looking at it and he said, you can look at my badge if you want to. I'll make Rodney King look like a cartoon. And wow. he was fucking serious. Of course. They handcuffed us, put us in a paddy wagon. And I, I remember thinking they're going to just take us somewhere and beat us to a pulp. And no one would know. And no one would know. Luckily, they took us to the holding cell. I was so happy to get out of there and like actually get into a holding cell. But that was still the most miserable 15 imagine, hours of my life. That was, you know, the thrill that you had that evening was like, at least I'm in a holding cell. Yes, yes. That? Because I, I knew what what was possible, especially after he threatened me in that, in, that, in that manner. And so these incidents aren't, I mean, they just... You know, they don't happen in a vacuum. Like, they, they happen all the time to people who look like me. And what's, what's happened over the years is that you compartmentalize it. You don't want to make it an excuse or a crutch to not fulfill your, 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 your ultimate goals in, that you have in life. Like, I, I, want to, I want to be great at what I do. And I don't want to lean on this and have this be a deterrent because I feel this shit every day. When I see a cop, when I see a police car, I get nervous as hell. And 
it's not until these recent incidents with Ahmaud Arbery and, and George Floyd and, um, oh, what's the young woman's name? I can't remember. Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor, thank you. Where all of these scars, they come, to the, they come to the surface and I don't even have words for them anymore because I've been holding them in for so many years. And it wasn't until some of my friends and the people I follow online started to just talk about all of their incidents. It was like, we have all these shared experiences. It's really been a reckoning, you know? It really has. And now I'm having not only conversations with my brothers, sisters, and my, my friends and colleagues who are black, but then now I'm having these really great conversations with my white friends of like, oh shit, Shane, that's what you've been going through? You, that, you experienced this? And I think we've all kind of, well not we are, I'm just thinking like white America thought this was like something that only happened in like the cities to like people who are acting the fuck up, but no. There are executives, CEOs, creative directors who deal with this all, who have dealt with it and deal with it now. We just don't talk about it because it's so painful to deal with it. And I think now that we're at least having the conversations that that empathy is really happening. I think there's a true engagement on so many different sides right now than it, had, than it has been before. Yeah. And so I've been searching for my voice in all of this because I have a lot to say. That's right. Um, I've been writing a memoir. Um, I haven't really said anything on social media yet. I've talked to, well, like I'm talking to you now and I'm talking to my friends. Well, you, you, like you said, you have a lot to say and what you, yeah. have, what you have to say is extremely important. So you don't wanna, you wanna say something that's thoughtful, you know, and it does, you know, a lot of people, that, 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 that's a little bit of our culture these days is like, you know, spit something out on social and right, partic right. participate in the zeitgeist. But yeah. I, I, get, I, get, I get the being thoughtful about it, you know? And so you, you mentioned something to the nature of, or... Like, what would you do as a creative? What, as what a creative, you, right. So, you know, the, like the core of who you are and... and yes. And so painting has been such... Has, has had such a profound effect on me over the last few months since um, the pandemic that I I feel like painting something that really expresses this shared experience not only things that I, that has happened have happened to me over in the past but then I know that other blacks can read can um, uh, can also empathize with and, and, and understand because they, they went through it also. So I'm, I'm creating this painting now. I'm in the initial stages of it. It's gonna look and feel, it has the same aesthetic as this Shoe Blossom series I'm working on, but I felt like it was really shallow to just kind of keep doing the whole Shoe Blossom thing. And listen, it's gonna be a full series. I've already finished the second one, which looks amazing. I'm not ready to share it because I don't think it just doesn't feel right right now. I feel like That's I need right. to. I mean, I've had to make a lot of um, editorial sort of content decisions. Yes. That big ones that that were like ready to go that are definitely on hold. So we're I. I okay. You know, good. good. It feels and good to say that actually. You know because yeah, I'm I'm putting things on hold and putting mm -hmm. things aside that just don't feel right. And so for you to feel right. the same way, even something as sort of 
beautiful as, as a contribution of a painting to the world. It's like, right. let's just, let's just, let's just marinate on that for a second. Yes. Yes. And so that, I'm putting the shoe blossom series to the side and I'm working on something more personal that, that really communicates this shared experience that myself and other African-Americans have experienced growing up here in the United States. And I'm telling you, one of the saddest things that I heard was one of my friends who basically said, Shane, I'm, I was born in Bosnia. And as a white woman here, I know that I don't feel the injustice that you feel. And I almost wanted to cry on the spot that I'm fucking born here. I'm an American to, through and through. And I have Swedish friends, German friends, Bosnian friends who feel safer here than I do that can go out on a bike ride and don't have the fear that I, I don't even do it. And that is so heartbreaking. Yeah. It's, it's heartbreaking. We have a series on the site called Her Life is Her Art, um, where we always ask a series of five questions of women, but I'm really interested to ask them of you. How do you get your best ideas? How do I get my best ideas? I get my best ideas when I have a clear head. It's really simple. There's no... Uh, formula of like going to this magazine or this site or drawing is I get my best ideas when I have a clear and relaxed headspace. Okay. What do you do when you're stuck? I go for a walk. I go for a walk or I take a bath. <laughs> you do? Okay, yes. That's good. We're going to have questions about that coming up. Um, do you have any, uh, do you have a, an amazing recent discovery. It can be a discovery of any kind. It could be like a, a discovery about yourself or a just a, like an actual tangible discovery, amazing recent discovery. I would say truly um, that I, I never thought that I could have a voice in the art world and I created something. And now I have, I've had people who have wanted to purchase something that came out of me from an artistic and a creative standpoint. And I've had people wanting to that have and interviewed me for it. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest discoveries I've, I've had in my adult life. That's really incredible. That's congratulations. Gallery. I've had an offer from a gallery and it's, you have. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. Proud Thank of you. you. Are you afraid of anything? I'm afraid of many things. You want me to name a few? <laughs> yeah. Cause, I mean, uh, no, just name, name two or okay, one name two. or one or one. I'm afraid of harm coming to me because of the color of my skin. That's very real. Um, now we're, at, what is your version of a t-shirt and jeans? What is the Shane Ward version of a t-shirt and jean? What, what, what's that, what's that head to toe look like? Ooh, it is From my, <laughs> my jeans are my really loose fitting, very structural pants from Beams. It's a Japanese, uh, brand. Uh, they, they're, yeah, yeah. Super wide, super comfortable. And then a Muji 
kind of a pre-worn-in type of shirt that buttons up. That's my You're a fan of Muji. I like that's that. That's my vibe. Oh yeah, I love Muji. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's accelerate this lightning round. Describe a perfect weekend. Being up here upstate by myself. Doing. Uh, laying on my hammock, um, looking at the sunset. And then later reading a book on my couch. That's a perfect weekend and maybe having the company for one day. (laughs) Just throw throw a little of that in. Favorite food? Ooh. My favorite food, probably, man, bacon. Okay. That's a good one. Favorite thing to cook? My favorite thing to cook is rosemary, New York strip, medium. We might if have I do to do that. Cut. I'm a happy man with a bottle of red wine. I'm nice. I'm in a zone. That's such a that's such a, a man meal. But we we yeah. should put that we should put the recipe on on the website. We we do recipes every week on storyandrain.com. Yes, it's, I mean it's freshly chopped garlic and rosemary oh. over. Some olive oil, salt and pepper. I mean, nice. you, you sear it on both sides and then throw it in the oven just to cook a little bit in the middle. And then you have some asparagus as a side, a really good Chianti or a Malbec. And you're talking about a perfect night. So you, you, I'm assuming you have a nice grill outside, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Are you a product junkie? What skincare and hair care products do you use? <laughs> I, I do. Um, I appreciate grooming. Um, I'm a Kiehl's guy um, through and through when it comes to um, body scrubs, facial um, exfoliating, nice um, concoctions. Um, what kind of body give, scrub? What kind of facial? Give us name a couple. Well, I mean, to me, is I don't know the the. Ex, I mean, it's all Kiehl's, um, so. We'll get that. But from, I, I had we're a gonna couple, link, We're going to link all this to the sh- in the show notes. Oh, okay. Please do. But I've lost a few of them because I went to. Have you ever been to Seoul, Korea? They curate men's self care products like no other. And I wish oh, I. I, I love kinda that. Went through I, all those I actually products. didn't know that, Shane. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the singer Maxwell is a, is a friend of mine, and he's the one who put me on to Seoul, Korea as a men's grooming capital of the world. I didn't know that. And I bought a whole bunch of products and I totally forgot, um, you know, all of the, the brand names, all but right. now, um, well, I'm going to hit you my- up and we're going to, we're going to link those in the show notes. Oh, okay. For um, sure. What are you binging or listening to? Like oh, podcast, binging, television, film. Okay. <laughs> television. There's, there's a few, um, there's a few movies that have really, I've really enjoyed Jojo rabbit. I really enjoyed that movie since I've been on lockdown. There was, what's it called? Knives out. That was a good movie. I really enjoyed that. But then as far as jumping in blackish, i never even gave it a shot, but I've been binging on that wild, wild country on Netflix. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else did you mention? Oh, podcast. Yeah. Binging or listening to. You know, um, I've always been a Joe Rogan guy, but since I've been on um, 
lockdown, I've just been reading more. I, I really haven't podcast since I've been up here. I've just, You're, I've been reading. I've been jumping into Baldwin and, and Hemingway in a big way. You're my inspo right now. I'm going to, I'm going to take that and run with that. Um, do you, do you have any regrets? Like throughout my entire life? Yeah. Like, is there a regret that, a regret that comes to mind? Well, on top of mind is not listening to you more when you are a creative <laughs> consultant. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, we'll save that. We'll save that whole breakdown for part two of this podcast. Yes. You um, said, Shane, stop. Don't worry about the heels. You can just do the sneakers. We can style those with dresses and skirts and, and suits. And I couldn't see it. And you saw it way before it happened. So that's the biggest Profession, one of the biggest professional regrets I had was really not having you take the will as, as much yeah. as uh, wow. we gave you. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's not great to see things too soon, you know, to be, to be too ahead of the curve, I would think. Um, Shane, what's important to you these days? Health, family, and create creation creating constantly creating if i have my family if i have my health and i have space to create that's a happy life and you have all three so that's good right i'm i'm, I'm living my best life yes okay last question for you what else do you know you'll accomplish in your lifetime two things and before the pandemic i would have thought would have been you know, it, they wouldn't, they would have been dreams. I don't think that they could have been realistic, but the two things I think I'm going to accomplish is one is having a, a true art show, um, an exhibition of my work. I think that's Very definitely good. I feel so much more optimistic, optimistic that that's going to happen. And then also being, um, an author of a, a memoir, a published memoir. I think those two are very much in play and it's because of the encouragement of, really close friends and family and and really having the headspace to understand that I do have uh, something to say. Always. Yeah. And that makes me very happy because that means that there are more chapters to be written in my life. And I think that it's a shame for any human being to feel as if there's only one or two chapters and that, that are going to define us. And I think that we're much more expansive then we give ourselves credit for. And just being able to have a support system around us. And again, just having that, you and I talked about this, a clear headspace to understand that you, no one should be able to ever put you in a box and That's tell right. you that this is what you are and always have to be. And I've been inspired by people like Virgil, for sure, Virgil Abloh, yeah. um, art director at LVMH. The guy is DJing, he has his own brand. He's doing collaboration, he's doing furniture. And, why not? I mean, Kanye was the first one to break through and be like, why, why am I only have to be a musician? What? Why is that? And now he's yeah. heading up a $1.3 billion behemoth empire. of a company and empire. So we can be what we really want is, I mean, that's a cliche and that's a platitude, but it is the truth. We just, we just need to get there. Well, that's a great note to leave it on. I cannot wait to be at your art show. And I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
Thank you for having me. You're a special one, Tamara. We need more like you. Oh, I love you. I love you too. Bye. Ciao.